We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Welcome back to another episode of Weird Distractions Podcast, a weekly show where I, your host Alex, rotate in discussing true crime cases, paranormal locations, conspiracy theories, folklore, urban legends, a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you and more than likely what your ex-best friend would consider a weird distraction from everyday life. Thank you so much for tuning in and hopefully you get a little distracted from whatever's going on, whether it's work, maybe a breakup, maybe you just need to tune out of life for a little bit. Don't worry, I got you. Let's learn something while we get a little distracted and kind of forget whatever we need a distraction from. This week, I am back discussing a true crime case, but before I dive into said case, I do have an update regarding a previous episode I covered, and I need to tell you what I need a distraction from this week. As always, if you want to hear what you need a distraction from, feel free to send me a DM or shoot me an email. And if you just want to get into this week's episode, you don't want to hear any of this, feel free to skip ahead at least three to five minutes. But for those that want to stick around and tune in, well, here we go. Let's get into it. So first things first, let's talk about the episode update. As many of you know, or maybe you don't know, but I'm going to tell you, I recently redid the Boy in the Box episode that Christy and I previously talked about, I think, in like episode five of the podcast, so way back in 2020. And I released this re-release episode on January 15th with fresh audio, maybe a bit of a fresher perspective, and with a fresh update. Well, yeah, a fresh update, big update, however you want to call it. This big update was the identity of the boy in the box, being Joseph Augustus Zarelli. So officials released this information in late November, early December of 2022, And in terms of the new update or the newest update I have, you might recall in my January 15th episode, I mentioned how we didn't know the boy's parents. We didn't know Joseph's parents whatsoever. There was some speculation online, but nothing was set in stone. Nothing was confirmed. And as I'm recording this on January 22nd of 2023... We now know who Joseph's parents were. So the parents have been identified as Mary Elizabeth, Betsy Abel, and Augustus John Gus Zarelli. And I'm going to read what I read on Instagram through the Crime Door page. If you are not following along on Crime Door, you really, really should. You should also check out their app. Really great. It's a true crime-based app. They cover a lot of cold cases, a lot of infamous cases. It's a pretty interesting and pretty informative space. So definitely check that out. But according to Crime Door, who referenced the Philadelphia Inquirer, Augustus J. Gus Sorelli and Mary Elizabeth Betsy Abel conceived a child in the spring of 1952, and the boy, being Joseph, had a short, painful life, which would become known as Philadelphia's greatest unsolved mystery. 
The Inquirer, based on interviews with members of both families and sources close to the investigation, now know that police believe that Zarelli and Abel are the parents of Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Betsy would have been about 21 years old when Joseph was born on January 13th of 1953. A close relative, who asked not to be identified, said that Betsy could have put him up for adoption because she had done that in the past with a daughter. The Inquirer was unable to confirm whether someone adopted Joseph. At this point in time, police are not making any comments, which is interesting, and I'm sure within the next couple weeks we might see something, and if that's the case, then of course I will circle back to it. But according to the Find a Grave website, just to highlight this, Augustus died June 14th of 2014, and Betsy reportedly died in 1991. Um, I don't think the two married each other from what I gathered online, and at this point, that's kind of all the of an update I have. I, regardless, I think it's still good to share because it just goes to show that, yes, sometimes cold cases go cold for a very, very, very long time, and some of them do remain unsolved mysteries, but there is some sparkle of hope that even the coldest of cases can get warmed back up. So if I have any more updates, I will definitely comment on them. Not just for this case, not just for Joseph's case. I will try and keep an eye and an ear out for other updates pertaining to other cases I've covered on the show. And if I ever miss an update or I haven't mentioned an update that maybe you've stumbled upon, please feel free to shoot it my way. I would love to see it and I would love to kind of speak about it in a future episode. Now my need for distraction. My need for distraction this week is that no matter how hard I try and sit down to record this episode, nothing seems to be working right. Whether it's the software I'm using or... It's just been a bit of a rocky road trying to get things recorded and out there. On top of that, to be honest, like completely honest, I think I'm still struggling with the January blues, which is kind of sad in a sense because January is my birthday month and I'm sure many January babies are in the same boat as me. You want to be excited, you want to be happy, but at the end of the day, everyone's broke, everyone's depressed, it's cold depending on where you live, and yeah, no one's no one's really wanting to do much. So yeah, my need for distraction this week is technology sucks and January's kind of sucky too at times. But with that said, I think it's time to shift gears. Let's talk about this week's true crime case. Let's get distracted. Let's learn something. Let's focus on something else. For this week's true crime case, I'm taking things all the way back to the early 1900s to discuss a tragic Belgium-based murder. I think this is the first Belgium case I've covered, which is exciting in that sense and, well, that sense only. And unfortunately, I'm covering another unsolved child murder. So if you're not in the headspace to listen, I totally get it. Hopefully you can come back and listen another day. With that said, get ready to dive into the unsolved murder of Jean Van Kalk with me. A case that really emphasizes that walking outside your front door is dangerous business. And if you can reference what emo band used that as a title in one of their songs, you get brownie points. This will more than likely be a bit of a shorter episode, given that there isn't much publicly stated about Jean or this case really. But I still wanted to share it with you all despite that. Due to potential coarse language and other adult themes, listener discretion is advised.
as mentioned, Jeanne's story takes us to Belgium, specifically Brussels. She was born a Virgo on September 17, 1897, to Mother Francoise. Based on what I gathered online, Jeanne's mother and biological father were not married, and he reportedly dipped out of the narrative before he even knew his daughter. There's nothing further really known about Francoise or even the ghost of a father figure in question, other than he may have worked as a typographer. The fact that we know his job but not his name kind of confuses me, but alas, it was the late 1800s, early 1900s. Nonetheless, Jeanne reportedly resided with her grandparents, assuming from her maternal side of the family that is pure speculation, I don't have that confirmed. She did have visits with her mother based on reports I did come across online, but it seems like her grandparents had primary custody of her. Now, when Jeanne went to go visit her mother, her grandfather would usually go with her. However, in the evening hours of February 7th of 1906, then 8-year-old Jeanne went to walk to her mother's house by herself. It turns out that her grandfather had to work this evening and was unable to accompany his granddaughter. I'm not really sure where her grandmother was in this situation, but regardless, Jeanne planned to walk by herself. Based on this, I kind of pick up on the notion that maybe her walking by herself wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe they weren't that far from one another. I mean, if it was a big deal, she probably wouldn't have walked by herself and we probably wouldn't be discussing her today. Jean would wander to her mother's house, which has been documented as being on the corner of Badoan Boulevard in Brussels. And I should mention that, yes, this is my first time covering a Belgium-based case, so bear with me with the pronunciations. They're gonna be a bit spotty given the fact that I've A, never been to Belgium, and B, I can barely speak English on a good day. Anyways, back to the case. As some may have guessed it, Jean never showed up to her mother's that evening, nor did she make it back to her grandparents' home. At around 11.45 p.m. on that same evening, a local machinist from the Theatre de la Ambrea discovered something seemingly weird when he was out with his son. The machinist's name was Joseph Eilenbosch, and just outside of the door of 22 Rue des Raondales in Brussels laid an unknown package. The two were hesitant to explore the package further, so they decided to contact local authorities before trying to open the package, which totally smart and something I would highly recommend in this situation. According to the Count Every Mystery blog, in a direct quote, when police arrived, they felt inside the package, which the package was made up of thick paper tied with a hemp cord. Inside the package, they could feel hair and skin. They decided to then bring it to the station before further inspecting it. End quote. I'm sure when they felt the hair and skin, they knew what they were dealing with to a certain degree and probably wanted to be in a proper room before unraveling the package any further. Once they were back to the station, they opened up the package and inside the package, as I'm sure many tuning in have may have already guessed it, it was Jean. From this point forward, I'm just going to give a little bit of a trigger warning as I'm going to be getting into some graphic details or more graphic details, I guess I should say, than what I have already discussed thus far. 
Jean was reportedly wearing her blue pea coat and her checkered dress, something that she was wearing when she was last seen alive. When police laid eyes on the clothes further, they noticed frozen blood on them, far from what her family would have recalled when they last saw her. Despite frozen blood on her clothing, her body was still warm when police eventually took her out of the packaging. It appeared as though Jean had her legs amputated from the groin area and unfortunately, tragically, her legs were not found with her inside this crude packaging situation. After further investigation, it was determined that Jean's cause of death was suffocation. It turns out that she may have suffocated on her own vomit after she was presumably forced to consume a large amount of alcohol. Documentation pertaining to her tragic death noted that there were also other signs of violence, which it wasn't clear in the details, but I am assuming that there were perhaps bruises and cuts on her body found. However, I can't say for certain, and to be honest, that's just me speculating at this point. Based on what was analyzed at the time, Jean's time of death was believed to have been between 8 and 9 p.m. on the evening of February 7th. Once again, when she left her grandparents' house to go visit her mom at her mother's house. On February 8th, after officials had been notified, such as the local public prosecutor, the press eventually caught wind. But from what I grasped online, it wasn't until a public hearing located in front of where her body had been found when her mother, Francoise, had actually found out about her daughter's murder. Which, can we pause and just zoom out for a second? Imagine how traumatizing that must have been for her mother. Not only was she only having visits with her daughter, and she technically was a single mom, but then she had to find out that her daughter was murdered the way she was in a public forum. I know even now it would be even hard for anyone to find out that their loved one died on social media in 2023, 117 years later. But regardless, I think that this emphasizes that murder cases should not be publicly released, like we should not know the facts and the details right away until family members have been first notified properly. I do get the argument that we need to know maybe right away in case it's a serial killer situation or maybe like a terrorist attack or something to that nature. I get that, but I think to protect the victims and their family members, there should be details that are withheld until the family members are alerted. That's kind of what I'm getting at. But of course, I would love to know your thoughts if you're tuning in. But back to the forensics of this case. So based on the amputation cuts found on Jen, it was thought that whoever did it may have had some sort of knife-wielding knowledge. The examples provided online include someone who maybe worked as a butcher or maybe a surgeon of sorts. So investigators took this into consideration when moving forward into their search but alas, it was time to put Jean to rest. The funeral would take place on February 11th with thousands attending her funeral. Public outcry began drowning the streets of Brussels, with many locals calling to action for Jean's murderer to be brought to swift justice. But police were working with no leads and, well, little to nothing to really go on. I shouldn't say little to nothing per se, I guess, because by February 15th of that same year, investigators would reportedly discover Jean's boots. Then, the following day, her amputated legs would also be discovered. 
Supposedly, it was by a local gardener in the Stivenberg Garden who discovered Jean's legs, which were reportedly wrapped in two separate packages. Which means if my Google mapping is any way correct, whoever dismembered the legs would have had to go an hour by foot from where Jean's body was recovered in order to do this, which didn't really lead to anything further. I mean, it wasn't really determined to me, at least, and what I came across online, whether this person did everything by foot, whether they did things, I don't know, maybe by vehicle, if they had a horse and buggy. Like, it really wasn't clear from what I gathered online. There wasn't really any further details, but I just thought it was interesting that there was quite a bit of distance between where her body was dropped off to where her legs were found. With these progressions and no one coming forward, police reportedly gave one of their search dogs Jean scent in probable hopes that the dog would lead to maybe further evidence. Based on what I gathered online, the dog supposedly stopped at 22 Rodez Herondel, aka where Jean's body was originally found, and outside Van Kolk's grandparents' home, where supposedly this search dog would just bark nonstop, like for a very very long time the dog kept barking outside of the home but other than that there wasn't really any further leads or evidence that this dog could find. I did see that there was a bloody shirt supposedly found in the neighborhood around this time however it wasn't clear to me whether this was actually linked to the case or just someone's random bloody shirt that they found. There would be about 20,000 Belgian francs offered by the government for information about the killer with hopes that someone would have come forward. Yet, the money sat and the investigation started to become cold. According to the Grunge website article, several people were arrested in relation to the case. However, all seemingly were released. One was a butcher's apprentice named Jean, who was arrested but later released, unsure the fine details other than the fact that he was a butcher's apprentice and his name was Jean. Another man was named Dr. Nysens, who was reportedly questioned about the case, but supposedly nothing came after the questioning. An alleged eyewitness around the same age as Jean came forward, noting to police that they saw her with a strange man at around 7 p.m. on the night of her murder. However, based on what I gathered, police allegedly dismissed this witness statement based on the age of the witness. Basically, they were a child. They made the claim that they saw Jean with somebody older, and police were like, well, you're a kid. What do you know? Which is so, oh, it just, it grinds my gears when I hear stuff like that because I get that police don't necessarily want to put stock in something that a minor may have saw. But realistically, why would the child lie? And on top of that, children are no more likely than adults to make up a lie or to say that they saw something when they didn't. I mean, I've met grown ass adults who claim up and down to see something and yet they haven't right like just because the witness is a child doesn't necessarily mean we should be dismissing them right away in my opinion of course not only that but you should at least take some witness statements and not necessarily dismiss all of them especially in a case where your leads aren't leading anywhere anymore Expanding on this whole dismissal thing, the Brussels police reportedly received a lot of heat regarding how they handled the case. Basically, the police at the time allegedly ignored some of the leads provided to them, as mentioned, and seemingly were described as being careless and incompetent in handling the case, which is a 
pretty heavy complaint. And I know this isn't the first time that we've had a cold case where police were heavily judged or heavily criticized. But to me, even reading through it, it's like, okay, were they a short staff? Were they burnt out? Were they just, I don't know, were they they ignorant? It's really hard to tell, right? And it's really disheartening hearing that they might have dismissed some of the eyewitness testimonies that were trying to be reported. It became kind of a concern within itself. And unfortunately, a year later, things kind of got darker, especially involving the Brussels police. So another child, Annette Bellot, was found dead in Anderlecht under similar circumstances. Anderlecht, for those like me who saw that or heard that and wondered, okay, what what is that? Is that is that a place? Is that a person? Is that a thing? It is a place. It is within the Brussels area of Belgium. So it's nearby, which makes it even more suspicious because of the location and the circumstances of Annette's murder. I also hope people listening aren't thinking that I'm just completely ignorant and don't know anything about Belgium. Fun fact, I don't know as much as I probably should know about Belgium, and I'm learning with you in telling this case. So Hopefully my ignorance can be looked at as me trying to learn and educate myself. So whatever you do, please don't roast me too hard in any future review you decide to leave the show. But moving on back to Annette. Unfortunately, like Jean's situation, Annette's killer has never been identified. I came across quite a bit online that many folks believe that whoever may have murdered Jean may have also murdered Annette and may be responsible for more childlike murders within the area in this time frame. However, I didn't come across any names during my research. If I missed it, please let me know. I hate to say it, but that's all that I have in terms of this week's case. There hasn't been any further updates. Unfortunately, the case has seemingly gone cold. And as I'm recording this, I don't really know if there will ever be a day where we can positively say who murdered Jean and who murdered Annette. With that said, I'm going to wrap up this week's weird distractions episode to recap this week's episode jean's murder remains unsolved to this day close to 120 years after her short life had been taken in doing my research for this week's case i found it kind of intriguing that annette who was murdered a year after jean how her case has been kind of linked to Jean's case due to similarities. Yet, I didn't hear about Annette's case until I looked into Jean's case. It makes me just wonder how many other cases are out there in Brussels that are similar in this time frame. It makes me wonder if there was a string of murders also similar that have not yet been linked or if the cases are more separate than we think. Although I don't want to promote false hope, there is a part of me that does hope Jean's case may be like other unsolved cases as of late, such as Joseph's case that we talked about in the beginning of this episode, where there may be some hope with forensic advancements and perhaps some justice may be served in the long scheme of things. I know it's unrealistic of me to say that there might be a day where maybe we just don't have any unsolved cases anymore. I think that is a pipe dream that is probably unattainable 
I just hope that there is a day where maybe some of the unsolved cases that we are now learning about in our era can be later solved. That's just my hope. Once again, it's a hope. It's a dream. Who knows what's going to happen and who knows how far forensics can really take us, especially in cases that are as old as genes. But let me know what your thoughts are. Feel free to comment on today's episode post over on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, or check out the Cultivate Network Discord and feel free to comment on the Weird Distractions channel. Let me know your thoughts. Let me know if you have any suggestions. Let me know if I completely butchered pronouncing any of these names or words. I will definitely correct myself in future episodes if I have and appreciate the feedback. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. If you're streaming the show on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. This helps the show out for free by letting others know that it's worth listening to. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an update is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle is at WeirdDistractI1 and TikTok. If you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month, why not join one of the two tiers over on Patreon? Each month you get exclusive content such as bonus episodes and series, the Weird Destinations travel posts, plus early access to the regular feed episodes. You can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to patreon.com slash WeirdDistractI podcast. Shout out to my current patrons, aka my weird little family members, Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Susan, Shadow, Courtney, Jennifer, and Cheryl. I love you all and appreciate your ongoing support of Weird Distractions. If you're unable to support the show on a monthly basis but still want to support it maybe as a one-time donation, check out the show's merch over on Redbubble or sign up for a one-time donation over on Buy Me a Coffee. Lastly, I want to hear from you. As some longtime listeners may recall, Christy and I released two listener story-based episodes called Listener Distractions. I'd love to keep doing this series and hear all of your weird tales of ghostly encounters, unexplainable events, and too close to home true crime stories. You can email me your tales at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections that need to be made after today's episode, let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye. Bye.